Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 135 and 136 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is the announcement of the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith. So we're going to do a little bit of history that led up to that moment, and then we're just going to praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. And the church has asked us to cover 136 as well which is way forward in winter quarter. So we're going to go from the martyrdom of Joseph Smith in June of 44, and then we're going to jump to the winter of 46-47. So Brigham's going to leave Nauvoo early on in February-ish of 46. It'll take them most of the summer to get across Iowa, and they conclude that there's no way they're going to make it to the Rocky Mountains because of that, so they camp at Council Bluff, Iowa, right there on the Nebraska-Iowa border, and we now call that Winter Quarters. And somewhere in their stay at Winter Quarters, the Lord reveals 136. So let's do that first, because we'd really like to end this podcast paying tribute to the prophet Joseph and let 135 be our culmination. So let's jump into 136. Brigham Young is in winter quarters, and the Lord is helping Brigham organize the saints for the trek west. Interestingly enough, by Christmas of 46, we have about 700 homes. So by the end of 1846, we've established a place to stop over. Yeah. And so much of section 136 that you'll read this week is the Lord instructing saints who come through to provide crops that they won't harvest. So you plant the crops because someone else coming through will harvest those crops. And there's kind of that spirit of, we're all in this together. And some people plant and some people harvest, but we're all doing the work of the Lord. Now think about that in terms of missionary work. Those of you who go out on a mission and are more planting than harvesting are doing the Lord's work. And even though you're not the one harvesting those crops, you were the one that planted the crops. You began the ball rolling that becomes the harvest. And so I think the Lord simply says, look, this is all my work. Those of you who are planting and won't harvest need to know that you're part of the team, that it doesn't matter if I'm a planter or a harvester because it's the work of the Lord. That's one of the truths I love about section 136. Awesome. One interesting thing about section 136 is just to read this section through the lens of Brigham Young and what the saints are actually told to do. So I'm going to go pretty quick through some of these verses, and you can just circle these. Now, I need to point out that Mike Day is about to make a list. He's going to make a list. (laughs) Mike Day is going to make a list. So this is really comforting for me because I'm usually the list guy, and this is fun. Look in verse 2, where it says, Let all the people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those who journey with them be organized in a company. So the Lord says, be organized in a company. And then verse 3, we need to be organized with captains, captains of hundreds and tens and fifties. And then verse five, let each company provide themselves with teams. Let them, verse six, go with their might. Verse seven, let each company 
decide how he may go. So there's some decision that needs to take place. Verse 8, let them bear an equal burden or proportion. Verse 9, let each company prepare houses and fields for raising grain. Verse 10, let every man use all his influence and property to remove this people. I mean, that's what we covenant in the temple, to build the kingdom of God, everything that we have. And then verse 16, let my servants that have been appointed go and teach this my will. And what's the purpose? Verse 18, to redeem and build Zion. So this has a lot of Brigham Young in it, doesn't it? This section feels different. If you read section 136 objectively, you're going to say, wait a minute, the wording sounds different. The language sounds different. We speak in terms of word prints. I think you all recognize that each one of our fingerprints are different, and we can identify who touched the table because each person has a unique fingerprint. Well, each person writes unique. We all have our own unique style, our own personality. And when we write, our word print comes out. Section 136 has a different word print. It has a different feel, which I think teaches profoundly that when God speaks to us, part of our personality comes through it. We are not fax machines receiving a fax and spitting it out. Prophets are not fax machines. They don't receive words and then spit them out. There's an element of the prophet in the revelation. So how much of Joseph Smith was coming through the revelations? Was Joseph just told exactly what to say? Did he see every single word and then he just dictated it and the Lord did the translation? Or somewhere in that process was Joseph Smith's mind involved? Joseph Smith's person. Did part of the Book of Mormon represent what was in Joseph Smith's head as well. You know, Bryce, we talked about this with loose and strict translation. There are some instances where it's clear that there is a very tight translation process. Whatever was on the plate text, this equivalency to direct speech. But then there's times when it's a loose translation, meaning that the prophet is using his mind and his images. And then another layer to this, in my mind, is the King James influence on the Book of Mormon. There are certain passages in the King James Bible that are reflected in the Book of Mormon, even to the very words. To me, reading 136 is Brigham Young in the sense it's so highly organized, right? Like, it's almost he's, he's thought of everything. Yeah, and I think the pattern, what Mike just talked about in terms of Revelation and the translation of the Book of Mormon, is a pattern we see in the Scriptures. So do you remember when the brother of Jared had two problems with his barges, light and air? Now, one problem was critical. One problem was life or death, and that's the air problem, and the Lord is very declaratory, even confusingly so, because he tells him to solve the problem by drilling a hole in the bottom of his boat. I don't think that the brother of Jared anticipated that the bottom would become the top. But the Lord was very specific. So were there passages in the Book of Mormon? Are there points to the revelations where the Lord is a little bit more, this is an air situation, and I need to tell you exactly what to say? But then the brother of Jared brings up the second problem. I think he was assuming the Lord would handle it the same way and telling him exactly how to solve the light problem. And the Lord says, what do you want me to do? And so in God's dealings with his children, I think we have to understand that there is this variety. Sometimes it's a little bit more air, and God is pushing, but other times it's a little bit more light, 
and we have to decide. So how else do you explain so much of Brigham Young's personality coming out in section 136 and not the same spirit of what we've been reading for the previous 135 sections. So how much of Joseph came through, how much of Brigham is now coming through, which I think begs us to understand that in all of our lives, sometimes the Lord pushes us because we're in an air situation. Other times it's more on us. It's that balance. I think it's a dance. We are dancing with deity. And sometimes we take the lead, and sometimes he takes the lead. And we're a little bit back and forth, which is the pattern of the gospel. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little, and there a little. A little back and forth. And so I just, section 136 is so monumental to me, not just because of what it says, but the feel, the flavor, the personality of it is clearly Brigham Young's personality. And so if God is dictating these revelations, he has to allow a little bit of the person to come through as well. And with the person is the Lord. Jedediah Morgan Grant, he talked about this where he said, since the death of Joseph, I believe that the keys of revelation were in the church. But when I heard section 136 read, I felt a light and a joy and satisfied that the Holy Ghost had dictated those words within. And then Apostle Heber C. Kimball noted that this was the first revelation that was put to pen since Joseph was killed, and the Lord had given it through the president for the good of this people as they're traveling out west. So both Heber C. Kimball and Jedediah Grant saw the Lord in it, and it really did speak peace to Jedediah Grant's heart, because since Joseph has been killed, now what? Are we going to get instruction like we did before? Yeah. Like, is that going to happen? And We're not going to talk about the succession situation after Joseph's killed. We're following the Doctrine and Covenants sequentially. So today, we're just going to talk about the martyrdom in this section. But just know, there were some saints that had these kinds of questions. Right. Is it a direct descendant, like a child or a grandson? Is it a chosen heir? I mean, we saw that with Apple. We saw Steve Jobs handpick his successor. So could Joseph handpick his successor? Is it a king like handing it to his son? Or was it a keys of the kingdom like Brigham Young should hold them? And so there were a lot of questions. And so this section 136 was very comforting when clearly the Lord is coming through 136, as well as a little bit of Brigham Young. So they saw God in the section. And they saw Brigham Young in this section, which reminded them that Brigham Young is, in fact, the one the Lord intended to lead the church after Joseph's death. It was a key of the kingdom type thing. And at the time, it was, we're going to follow the Quorum of the Twelve. The Quorum of the Twelve is going to lead us. And as president of the Quorum of the Twelve, Brigham Young was that man. He was the leader. And he was able to establish a way that we could help each other get across the plains in what one historian called, quote, the largest and most successful group immigration in the history of the United States. More than 80,000 converts came from Europe between 1840 and 1900. Now, obviously, Brigham Young doesn't live to 1900, but he oversaw the bulk of these individuals that came West. And one historian, and his name is John Turner, he wrote this, 
By the mid-1850s, the Mormons, under Brigham Young's leadership, had audaciously laid claim to a thousand-mile corridor of colonies and forts within the American West. And then later he'll even say that one-sixth of the American West was colonized by members of the church under the leadership of Brigham Young. And I also love this quote by U.S. historian H.H. Bancroft, where he talked about the difficulty of reaching pre-railroad Utah. And he said, quote, excepting perhaps some parts of the Sudan, there were few places in the entire world more difficult to reach than the Valley of the Great Salt Lake. Think about this. For immigrants, the journey across ocean, plains, and mountains totaled about 5,000 miles. But thanks to the organizational skills of the church, and I'm going to say Brigham Young and the leadership of the church, and the resources that we were able to put together, most immigrants avoided many hardships and mistakes that usually plagued inexperienced travelers. And if you dig into the weeds of this historically, and you were to look at the fatality rates of people that came west in the 19th century, the saints really were successful. I mean, a lot of times when we talk about the migration west, we focus on the couple of times when, like in the William Martin handcart companies, where they struggled and there was death. But That's because we don't report on <laughs> on safe plane landings. Yeah, no exactly. one writes articles about safe plane landings. We we notice plane crashes, and so the attention drawn to the two companies that get stuck in the snow and have hardships should not dominate our mind in the numerous crossings that were extremely successful. It's just amazing. It's mind-boggling to see how successful the immigration program was and the distances involved. And I think it's difficult in our time period to wrap our brain around traveling those distances because we get in airplanes, but they do it. I mean, they're traveling across the ocean, they're walking and so forth. And my point is section 136 was the blueprint to make that journey successful. And he did it amongst people that didn't have a lot of means. And like Bryce talked about, a lot of the people that planted the crops at winter quarters are planning it for people that they haven't met yet that are going to come across. And that's a beautiful metaphor for what it means to follow Christ. I mean, just think about that. We do things that are good because we love Jesus and we may never see the fruit, but it doesn't matter. It's part of the process. We don't do it for the recognition of doing it. Yeah. We do it for the love of the divine redeemer who asked us to do it. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. So this whole spirit of section 136 and getting the saints to the Rocky Mountains, just a beautiful thing for you to study this week. And through Brigham Young, the Lord told us in winter quarters that we need to be tried in all things, verses 31 through 33 that we may be prepared to receive the glory that God has for us. And if we can't bear chastisement, we can't receive the kingdom. A lot of things had come behind the saints in Joseph's martyrdom and Missouri and Kirtland, but a lot of things were still ahead of them. So the Lord said, I'll be with you, but we need to be faithful in tribulation and bear chastisement. So Mike and I just refer you to the previous podcast where we've talked about that. We talked about it in the Liberty Jail letter in section 121, and we also have mentioned it a couple times back in section 58, where the Lord talked about the blessings that come after tribulation. This is not the podcast where we're going to get into verses 31 through 33. Excellent. Let's now talk about the martyrdom of the prophet Joe Smith. So the section that we're really going to be spending our time in this podcast on is going to be section 135. But we're going to do a little history because we need to understand what led Joseph Smith to Carthage. Why was he going to Carthage? And why would some 
who had been dear friends now be so opposed to Joseph? Why the opposition? Why did some past friends, people who were even counselors, now turn against him? It is beneficial for all of us to maybe understand the journey of these apostates to see that it doesn't happen in a day. There was a long series of unresolved conflicts that led some of the laws and the Fosters and the Higbees to be so violently opposed to Joseph Smith to seek for his death and his blood. There are three primary reasons that I can see that are going to culminate in Joseph Smith's death. And one of those is plural marriage. One of the things that causes people to turn against Joseph is him living plural marriage. Now, we take you back to our podcast on 132 and the challenge that Joseph faced. I, I call we, it an untenable position yeah. because on one hand, he's told to practice it. He's also told to teach it to a select group of people. But according to Lorenzo Snow and some of the historical stuff associated with Fanny Alger, he was instructed to not talk about it. So how, how do you do that? I know. And I think Joseph saw this as a personal requirement, not necessarily as a church requirement. And so how do I personally do these things and keep it private because I've not been commanded to teach it publicly? And so that's the challenge is Joseph is trying to do what he felt he was being asked to do. But really the untenable position of teach it, don't teach it, live it, don't talk about it. Right. And that conflict is going to cause some in that inner circle to turn against him. And it's kind of the same today. Plural marriage is very much a lightning rod in and out of the church. And it's just that how in the world is he going to live it without you know, people misunderstanding? He can't correct a lot of false beliefs out there. He can't publicly state what's been going on inside his soul. And so there's going to be a conflict. So that's one major tension that's growing in Nauvoo is this plural marriage issue. And that's a big one. I mean, we can't understate it. Now, you got a couple more, don't you? Yeah. Then the second one I would remind everyone is that you've got to understand what happened in Missouri. Joseph is very much a product of his history, as we all are. In Missouri, the government abandoned us. Joseph went to the President of the United States and to Congress after Missouri, pleading our cause. Can we get our possessions back? Can we get our land back? Can you correct this situation? And the President of the United States basically said, I can do nothing for you. Your cause is just, but if I do it, I'm going to lose the vote of Missouri, and I can't do that. And he learned from this. And so he learns that he cannot rely on the government to protect the saints against their enemies. So when they established the Charter of Nauvoo, to his credit, and I think we can all understand based on that history, to his credit, he built up a society where we can rely on ourselves for our protection. Now, someone from the outside is going to look at that and say, Joseph Smith built a kingdom within the United States. Which he did. And yes, there's a lot of truth to that accusation, but I think you can understand why. He had learned from Missouri not to be able to rely on the government for their protection. And so he wrote into the charter a self-protection. It's kind of like he, he did. He created a kingdom within the United States where 
we're going to take care of ourselves because we don't know if anyone else is going to do so. Bryce, I'm going to just throw this out there. A big thing that he was establishing is this idea that you can't just come into Nauvoo and arrest people. That if you're going to do that, you've got to get permission from the city council. Well, who's on the city council? And for the bulk of the Nauvoo period, who's the mayor? Right. And by the way, Bryce, do we blame him for this? No. It was legal. He did it legally. Yeah, and I can see it from both sides. I can see how the enemies of the church are saying, whoa, you're giving yourself way too much power. You shouldn't do that. You need to balance that power. But on the other side, I'm going to say, well, where were those with power when we needed them? Amen. They weren't there. So if we don't have the power, whose power can we rely on? So that's another source of tension. So we've got plural marriage as a source of tension going on in Nauvoo. We've got this, this idea that Joseph's building a kingdom, an independent state within the United States, and they really could defend themselves. I remind you that Nauvoo is bigger than Chicago at this time period. And, and when you're talking about this, let's be clear— we had the Nauvoo Legion, which is an armed, an armed militia. Yeah. yeah, it was a militia, and they were under Joseph's command. And so enemies of the church could look at this and see, or they would say, you're building an empire, just like you're talking about. From Joseph's perspective, he's, no, I'm trying to live. I'm protecting the saints that I love. Right. Because I can't rely on anyone else protecting them. Even the governor of the state is eventually going to say, we can't coexist together. And then it's eventually communicated to the saints after the martyrdom of Joseph. Uh, It's communicated, you can't live in the United States. You have to leave. And so the, the saints literally leave the United States of America and they go to Utah. But it's not Utah at the time. It's Mexico. It's a territory that's just not the United States. And so I think that when we talk about the Nauvoo period, it's plural marriage we talk about, but the Nauvoo Charter really in the minds of these people was a big deal, right? Which is why the saints leave. The repeal of the Nauvoo Charter is why Brigham left Nauvoo. It makes us vulnerable. Yeah. What's the third thing? Now we have a third tension, and that is as enemies turn against Joseph, as plural marriage and the Nauvoo Charter kind of cause people to be nervous and turn against Joseph, some of them are going to exercise their freedom of the press, and they're going to print a very libelous, very angry, seditious newspaper. At least that's how the saints viewed it. And the the saints are going to take it upon themselves. The city council is going to take it upon themselves to say, in our opinion— That is in violation of the law, and they're going to execute an executive decision to destroy that printing press. And that right there, the destruction of that printing press, which was known as the Nauvoo Expositor, is the main reason Joseph Smith is going to Carthage jail, and that was the excuse that the enemies needed. They just needed him in Carthage. And once he's in Carthage, several of them will be heard to say, the law can't reach him, so powder and ball will. So that's the reason Joseph goes to Carthage, to answer the charges of the Nauvoo Expositor. Now, this is, again, another point of contention, freedom of speech versus protection of the public good. Um, Where do my rights end and your rights start? Where does the good of society 
cause you to step down and when do you have the right to speak? And so there's this other tension going to happen. Do the people turning against Joseph have a right to speak their opinion and their concerns? And do their concerns create a public danger that Joseph needs to protect? Yeah. So William Law, with a group of men, purchases a press, and he publishes the first and only edition of the Nauvoo Expositor. And the reason why he does, I I think knowing the reason is important. William Law disagrees with plural marriage. William Law is also very close to Joseph. His home is just very near Joseph, about 50 yards away. William Law is in the first presidency. William Law served a mission with Hiram Smith. He was faithful in the church. But at one point, William Law makes a statement where they're at this impasse where William Law says, it's either plural marriage or nothing. If you let go of plural marriage, we're going to be just fine. But if you insist on holding on to it, then you're forcing my hand, Joseph. And so I'm going to kind of back up and talk a little bit about some of the events that led to this. There's so many other players involved, but I think William Law is a really good representative of what the issues were that the dissenters had with Joseph. Now, we're in, no use... way, in no way are we trying to condone or show support for, let's be very clear, Mike Day and Bryce Dunford absolutely love the prophet Joseph, but I think there's value in painting the picture of what the enemies were thinking when they thirst for his blood. Right. Not to support it or to defend it, but just let's paint the picture so that you understand what was going on and what were the events associated with this martyrdom. Yeah. So William Law is Joseph's friend. But on July 12th, 1843, the doctrine of plural marriage is revealed with section 132. That's recorded. But in Nauvoo in 1843, the public doesn't know about it. There's whisperings, but according to historical sources, Joseph is told to keep it secret, but then he's told to also teach it to a select group of people. So Joseph's trying to do both, and it is an untenable position. It's an unwinnable situation. How do you be in the first presidency and not know about it? Well, in July, William doesn't know. And so in August of 1843, a month after the revelation is given, Hiram reveals it to the Nauvoo High Council. And we don't know when William Law is told about plural marriage, but our best sources indicate about this time in the fall, in the fall of 1843, and it's Hiram who comes to William Law. And he reads the revelation in section 132, and William has a reaction that's similar to Emma's. His reaction is, I don't believe it. So what does he do? I, and by the way, I give William Law credit for this. William Law, instead of getting angry, He goes to Joseph's house and knocks on his door and he says, Joseph, is this real? Like, is this, is what your brother telling me true? And Joseph tells him it is true. It's totally true. And William says this, Jane and I were just turned upside down by it. We didn't know what to do. Now, in the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, Nephi is given something that turns him upside down. And if you do a careful reading, Nephi goes to the Lord. And then it says that the Lord softened his heart. What does that tell you about Nephi? There are going to be difficult issues where we need to reason with the Lord. How many times in the scriptures does he say, come and let us reason together? Let's work this out together. 
And so I love the fact that Nephi did not want to leave Jerusalem, but took that to the Lord and said, help me understand this. His heart was softened and he rebelled not. I don't understand this. I'm opposed to this. Take it to the Lord and reason with him. Let him teach you and come to some understanding with God, not necessarily with your fellow men. And so at least to pay tribute to William Law, he tried that. He at least went to Joseph, and he and Jane discussed it a lot. And through this time period in the fall of 1843, William and Emma cultivate a very strong friendship in the sense that they both love Joseph, but they hate plural marriage. Now, Emma at times would say things like, I know it's from the Lord, but boy, am I struggling. And personally, me, Mike Day, I sit in that chair with Emma and I hold her hand and say, amen, sister friend, I'm with you. But William Law really wants to push Emma to kind of make it go away. And Joseph's hearing about these conversations, and in the midst of all this, there's politics. In August of 1843, there are two people who are running for U.S. House of Representatives, and one of them is a man by the name of Cyrus Walker. He's a Whig candidate. And Joseph promises him, hey, if you help us, we are going to give you the vote. He says, nine out of 10 Mormons will vote for you if you help us out. William Law hears Joseph make that promise. Now, there's another candidate named Joseph Hogue, and he's a Democrat. And the governor of the state is a Democrat. And there's whisperings through the powers that be in the Democratic Party that if the saints vote for the Democrat in the House of Representatives, that the militia won't come against them. You see, in August of 1843, there are individuals that are talking about revoking the Nauvoo Charter. And as we've discussed, if the Nauvoo Charter is taken away, the saints are vulnerable from Missourians who can come and do whatever they want. And there's even some speech of some of the Missourians organizing an armed raid even to come to, to Nauvoo. So the tensions are high. Joseph has promised Cyrus Walker earlier that we'll give you the vote, but on August 5th, 1843, two days before the election, Hiram Smith publicly gives a discourse in front of, quote, concourses of people. There's a lot of people in Nauvoo, and he says, I'm going to vote for Joseph Hogue, the Democrat candidate. Now, William Law is there, and William Law is in the first presidency. So after Hiram steps down, William Law stands up and says, no, we need to vote for Cyrus Walker, the person we promised. Then Hiram stands up again and says, I've received a revelation. We need to vote for Joseph Hogue. And Joseph Hogue carries the vote. And decisively, it was Nauvoo that decided the vote. Now, this may not sound like a big deal to us today, but what we need to understand is Illinois was a swing state in the presidential election. And Hancock County, where Nauvoo existed, was kind of a swing county. Whoever wins Hancock County, probably, if you can get the bulk of those votes, you can probably get the U.S. House of Representatives. So Nauvoo became a lightning rod for politics. Both candidates would want to garner the Mormon vote. They're going to come and politically appeal to the Mormons yes. and say, hey, if you vote for me, let's let's work something out. So you're going to get a lot of that tension. And we see that today in presidential elections in the swing states where there's a whole lot of money spent on commercials and there's a whole lot of visits to the state. And there's a lot of pressure in that state to garner that vote. Yeah. So – this disagreement between William Law and Hiram Smith can help modern Latter-day Saints contextualize the views that outsiders had regarding us and re regarding the power concentrated in Nauvoo, and more specifically 
in Joseph Smith. And what happens is both parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, from this point forward, stop trusting Latter-day Saints and they see the Latter-day Saints as a concentrated power that can swing politics. And they look at Joseph and the leadership of the church with skepticism, even the Democrats, because they see the power that was held by this block vote. And we give all the numbers in the show notes. If you want to get into the weeds of the numbers, we're not going to do that in this podcast. But the point is the bulk of the members of the church vote for who Hiram says they should vote for. And that causes a lot of tension between William Law and Hiram Smith. And that's in August of 1843. And right after this, on August 19th, a bipartisan meeting of political leaders in Illinois get together in a place called Warsaw to seriously discuss steps that they can take politically to remove the Nauvoo Charter. Now, the saints hear about this. So as early as 1843, they're hearing that these people want to take away the Nauvoo Charter, which is going to leave us vulnerable to do Missouri all over again. And it's not like this is new. I mean, we have been massacred in the past. The graves are still fresh of the people whose lives were slain in the memories of the members of the church. So this is a very real tension in their hearts, is we're not going to let Missouri happen again. And anything we can do to protect ourselves from Missouri, we're going to do. And so because of this, there's rumors swirling around. And some of the rumors are that there are individuals that are seeking to kill Joseph and I want to backtrack a little bit. If you remember the time we talked about when Orrin Porter Rockwell came back from Missouri, one of the messages that Orrin Porter Rockwell brought with him when he talked to Joseph is that there were plots in Missouri to get Joseph killed and that there were people in Nauvoo that were plotting against him to basically extradite him and bring him back to Nauvoo and get Joseph killed. And so the Nauvoo City Council on December 8th does what I call a double down move. If anybody comes from Missouri to extradite Joseph Smith, they will then be arrested and then they will be investigated. And if they're found that the charges are false, that they will be incarcerated. And so that's a totally different thing than you have to get permission from the council to extradite him. Now it's if you even attempt to extradite him, you're going to jail. And so that happens in December. And William Law takes issue with this. Now, personally, I kind of side with Joseph on this. I look at Joseph and say, he's doing everything that he can legally to protect himself. And so if you fast forward now to April, April 7th, 1844, he gives the King Fault sermon. And that's where he talks about the nature of God and who he is and who his father is. And then in late April, a group of dissenters organize their own church and they're led by William Law and some of the others that are on the top of the signature list for the Nauvoo Expositor. And we think right around April of 1844, towards the end of April, when they organized this church, there are about 300 dissenters in Nauvoo. And at this time also, the Laws and the Fosters are excommunicated. William Law is taken out of the first presidency. And from William Law's perspective, he has been done wrong. You see, there were things that had to take place for a member of the First Presidency to be removed, and those procedures weren't followed. And to be excommunicated, it was important that the person know the charges and be able to go and face his accusers. 
that doesn't happen. Those procedures are violated. So from William Law's perspective, I mean, he hears about his removal from the church after it took place. And from his perspective, he's like, hey, this you guys didn't follow the procedures. Now, William Law's already against Joseph. He's already a dissenter, but that just puts fuel on the fire. And so from William Law's perspective, he feels like too much power is concentrated in Joseph. We've talked about politics. We've talked about uh, plural marriage. William Law takes issue with the King Fault sermon. And on top of all of this, there are lots in the city of Nauvoo that Joseph has that are encumbered with debt, and it's tied to the debt of the church, and there's lots that William Law has. And when saints come in and move into Nauvoo, Joseph encourages them to buy the lots that the church owns. And so William Law feels like economically he's also being persecuted. And so that's another layer to William Law's angst against the prophet Joseph Smith. And think about this. If you live in Nauvoo and now you've been publicly excommunicated, he finds out about this in the newspaper that he's been excommunicated. How are the people in Nauvoo going to treat you? I mean, William Law has built a mill. He has lots. He obviously owns businesses in the city. And now economically, he's been destroyed. And so he comes to Joseph and basically says, you've got to fix this. You've got to remove the component of plural marriage. And Joseph says, I can't. And With all of this going on, in late April, in May, William Law and some individuals get together, purchase a press, and they publish the first and only edition of the Nauvoo Expositor on June 7, 1844. And in the Nauvoo Expositor, it clearly says that Joseph Smith is practicing plural marriage. There's a lot of things in there, but that's the big ticket item, because in William Law's mind... This needs to be brought out and brought to light. In his position, he says, everybody needs to know about this. I sit in the 21st century and I read this and see, what is Joseph to do? If he really is told to practice this, but also to keep it secret, how do you do this? And I also look at William Law and see he's on a train that's going a certain direction and he's not going to back down and Joseph's not going to back down. And I think what we end up having is mutually assured destruction. Both sides are entrenched. And it blows up with the Nauvoo Expositor. So hopefully we've illustrated the layers of William Law's discontent. And that kind of gives you an idea of what happens up to the publication of the Nauvoo Expositor. Mike and I are going to post in the show notes that one and only issue of the Nauvoo Expositor so you can read it for yourself. Now the question is, is William Law calling for Joseph's death? Is he calling upon apostates? Is he calling upon those who are disgruntled to rise up and take action against the church? That's how some perceived it, that this was a threat to the safety of Joseph himself and to the saints in general. So we'll let you read the edition. You can make the decision for yourself. Did they go too far in threatening Joseph or did they not? That's going to be the issue at the heart. We'll let you make the decision. So now the question is, what do we do with this? It's taken to the city council. Joseph alone does not make this decision. And the city council makes the decision that they went too far. They're calling for violence. They're calling for insurrection, and that's a threat to the city. Therefore, it is within the city council's right to end the threat. So they make a city council decision approved by Mayor Joseph Smith— to destroy the press. 
and they carry out that decision and destroy the printing press that printed the Nauvoo Expositor. So that's going to stir the pot. Now, when I say destruction of the press, man, do people today go out of arms because we have learned in 2021 that the right of the press and the right of free speech are germane to our fundamental rights in this country. But that hasn't always been the case. The freedom of press has not always been viewed that way. So we've got to understand not only was the printing press perceived as a threat to society, but the rights of the press had not fully been established like they have today. Now, luckily, we have the brilliance of Dallin H. Oaks, a legal mind, who's going to talk about the destruction of that press. Dallin H. Oaks wrote the suppression of the Nauvoo Expositor in the Utah Law Review. He wrote this back in 1965, and these are his words. He says, as a young law professor pursuing original research, I was pleased to find a legal basis for the action, meaning the action of the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor Press, I was pleased to find a legal basis for this action in the Illinois law of 1844. The amendment to the U.S. Constitution that extended the guarantee of freedom of the press to protect against the actions of city and state governments was not adopted into law until 1868, and it was not enforced as a matter of federal law until 1931. And then Elder Oaks says, we should judge the actions of our predecessors on the basis of the laws and commandments and circumstances of their day, not ours. And so in history, they call this presentism. When we judge somebody and their actions or their speech on what they did in their day through the lens of our day, we're all guilty of presentism. We do it all the time. And so I think it's important to contextualize this, that this happened in a time when that was allowable But Joseph does go through the process with the city council. They vote on it, and the sheriff and a group of men go to the expositor printing press, and they destroy the press and scatter the type on June 10th, 1844, as ordered by the Nauvoo City Council. But that is the precursor to his arrest, and that is the precursor to William Law then going and swearing out uh, a legal charge against Joseph for not only the destruction of the press, but he comes at him with all the legal might that he can. And then a fellow by the name of Thomas Sharp, who's a writer for the uh, Warsaw Signal, on June 11th, he says this, that war and extermination is inevitable. Citizens arise one and all and let it be done with powder and ball. From Thomas Sharp's perspective, Joseph's got to go. And he's not talking about move. He says he's got to be killed. And he really riles up the angst of people that live outside of Nauvoo to come for Joseph. And because of the threat of violence and because of Thomas Sharp's words and the tension in and around Nauvoo, on the 18th of June, 1844, Joseph Smith declares martial law in Nauvoo and later calls the Nauvoo Legion to protect the city. Him doing this is important to untangle some of the legal situations that he will be facing when he gets to Carthage, and he appears before those that have the legal power to hold him. So that brings us up to the night of June 22nd, 1844, which was a Saturday night. That evening, on Saturday, June 22nd, about 9 p.m., Hiram comes out of the mansion house and gave his hand to Reynolds Cahoon and said, quote, a company of men are seeking to kill my brother Joseph, and the Lord has warned him to flee to the Rocky Mountains, 
to save his life. Good brother Cahoon, we will see you again. That night, Joseph and Hiram and a small group find their way across the Mississippi River and flee Nauvoo. I think that's telling that Joseph knew that we would need to go to the Rocky Mountains eventually. The only safe place for us is going to be outside of our enemy's reach. And so Joseph is headed to the Rocky Mountains. So they ask Orrin Porter Rockwell to go with them, and he's going to come back. They send, so they get across the river, and they send Orrin Porter Rockwell back with instructions to bring horses. So Joseph is going to kind of wait on the Iowa side for horses and supplies. Well, the next day, Emma writes a letter and sends it with a group of people pleading for Joseph to return. In fact, representing Emma, Reynolds Cahoon, Lorenzo Wasson, and Hiram Kimball accused Joseph of being a coward and wishing to leave the people, saying that their properties is going to be destroyed. He, they liken Joseph to a shepherd who leaves the sheep just as the wolves show up and that the sheep are going to be slaughtered. Now, they have a reason for this. Governor Ford says that. On the 22nd of June, he tells representatives, quote, I have a great fear that your city will be destroyed and your people will be exterminated if you don't turn over Joseph. So the governor of the state is saying this. And so I can see why Reynolds Cahoon is taking that message, right? There's that little tension is you're leaving us and we're going to be slaughtered. At that moment, Joseph replies, quote, If my life is of no value to my friends, it is of none to myself. So Joseph doesn't know what to do. He says, what shall we do? Orrin Porter Rockwell says, you're the oldest. You ought to know best. As you make your bed, I will lie with you. Joseph turns to Hiram and says, brother Hiram, you are the oldest. What shall we do? Now, Hiram has seen Joseph go to court, what did Brigham Young say, 46 times that Joseph went to court 46 some odd times. I think that was the number. So many, right? So Hiram has seen him taken into custody. He's seen him go to court, and every time he just comes out. So Hiram says, let us go back and give ourselves up and see the thing out. Joseph thought for a few minutes and said, if you go back, I will go with you but we shall be butchered. That was Joseph's prophecy. If we go back, we're going to be butchered. Hiram doesn't think so. Hiram says, no, let us go back and put our trust in the Lord and we shall not be harmed. The Lord is in it. But he does conclude, if we live or have to die, we will be reconciled to our fate. So they come back to Nauvoo, say goodbye to their families. They prepare to head to Carthage. So on their way to Carthage, uh, Joseph kind of falls behind to talk to Orrin Porter Rockwell, and the others shout up and say, come on, Joseph, and Joseph shouts out, it is of no use to hurry, for we are going back to be slaughtered. But they, they move forward, they're on their way to Carthage, and when Joseph gets to the top of the hill and he sees the beautiful temple, which is still under construction, he pauses And then he said, this is the loveliest place and the best people under the heavens. 
Little do they know the trials that await them. And then they get to Carthage. Now, just as they get to Carthage, there's a concern from the other side. So I think a lot of people kind of know what's going to happen, and they're worried about the saints' retaliation. And so there's kind of a concerted effort to get the guns away from the Nauvoo militia. So Captain Dunn meets Joseph and asks him to go with him back to Nauvoo and have them turn in their state-issued guns. Let's take the guns away from the Nauvoo militia because they were worried about retaliation. Joseph concedes, goes with them back to Nauvoo, asks the militia to turn in their guns, many of whom were very opposed to that, but they obeyed and they turned in their guns. So now we have a defenseless city who can't retaliate and a prophet headed to what he believes is his martyrdom. And that's the setting for Joseph saying, I go like a lamb to the slaughter. And yet he said his conscience was free of any guilt. He believed when he finally has an interview with Governor Ford, he believes they were legally within the law in the destruction of the press. And he's more than happy to account for that in a court of law. And I think Elder Oaks would say they followed the procedure according to the law, you know, that existed then. Yeah. So Joseph is prepared to answer. I, my, he says, my conscience is free. I go as a lamb to the slaughter. So now that gets Joseph Smith into Carthage. Now, something very interesting happens. The night Joseph comes into Carthage, there's a group of militiamen who want to see him. They want to jeer at him. They want to destroy him, and they want to see him. They demand, bring him out to us. And, And Governor Ford says, I'll bring him out tomorrow. Just go home, and I'll let you see him tomorrow. So the next day, Governor Ford parades him in front of a group of militiamen, and Joseph Smith meets with some of their commanders. And a little interesting prophecy is made there. I'm going to read from the history of the church what happened at that moment. General Smith asked them if there was anything in his appearance that indicated that he was the desperate character his enemies represented him to be. He asked them to give him their honest opinion on the subject. The reply was, no, sir, your appearance would indicate the very contrary, General Smith, but we cannot see what is in your heart, neither can we tell what are your intentions. To which Joseph replied, very true, gentlemen, you cannot see what is in my heart, and you are therefore unable to judge me or my intentions. But I can see what is in your hearts, and I will tell you what I see. I can see that you thirst for blood, and nothing but my blood will satisfy you. It is not for crime of any description that I and my brethren are thus continually persecuted and harassed by our enemies. But there are other motives, and some of them I have expressed, so far as relates to myself and inasmuch as to you and the people thirst for blood. I prophesy in the name of the Lord that you shall witness scenes of blood and sorrow to your entire satisfaction. Your soul shall be perfectly satiated with blood, 
And many of you who are now present shall have an opportunity to face the cannon's mouth from sources you think not of. And those people that desire this great evil upon me and my brethren shall be filled with regret and sorrow because of the scenes of desolation and distress that await them. They shall seek for peace and shall not be able to find it. Gentlemen, you will find that what I have told you to be true. Powerful message. Yeah. So they're surrendering themselves, Joseph and his brethren, to a constable at Carthage, and they're going to be released because they pay bail. But then they are rearrested on the charge of treason, which is a capital offense. And you might be asking, why are they being charged with treason? And the reason why they're being charged with treason is because of the issue that Joseph made to declare martial law. Now, if you want to get into the complexities of what's happening on these couple of days, I would highly suggest that you watch the video that we're going to link in the show notes that's put together by some great historians from the Joseph Smith papers. And if you go to Gordon Madsen's commentary at about the 1830 minute mark of the video, he will kind of take you through the things that happen at this time to get Joseph put in custody. And because treason is a capital offense, they now can hold Joseph Smith at least till they sort out the legality of that charge. He's been released on the charge for inciting a riot for the destruction of the press, but now they're holding him over for treason. And this all happens on June 25th, which is a Tuesday. And so Joseph and his companions will be held in Carthage for the remainder of the time. That's where they are. And on Wednesday, June 26th, Governor Ford had a long interview with the prophet Joseph. He promised that they would be protected and that he, the governor, when he went to Nauvoo, would take Joseph with him. That doesn't happen. The next day on the 27th of June, Governor Ford went to Nauvoo, leaving the prisoners in jail, to be guarded by their most bitter enemies, the Carthage Greys. Now, Joseph can kind of sense the impending doom and takes the opportunity to bear a solemn testimony of the work that he has laid out, and especially the translation of the Book of Mormon. He was willing to die for his testimony for the Book of Mormon. That's just a powerful moment, moments before the mob comes. Elder Holland says, if this had been a fraud, if Joseph had written the Book of Mormon himself, as some accusers believe he did, why would he sit there in prison knowing his life is on the line and bear testimony of that truth? He would not do that. A couple hours before the mob shows up, John Taylor sings what is now known as a poor wayfaring man of grief. He sings all seven verses. The sixth verse of that hymn says the following, In prison I saw him next condemned to meet a traitor's doom at morn. The tide of lying tongues I stemmed and honored him mid shame and scorn. My friendship's utmost zeal to try, to try he asked if I for him would die. The flesh was weak, my blood ran chill. But my free spirit cried, I will. Then in a moment to my view, the stranger started from disguise. The tokens in his hands I knew, the Savior stood before mine eyes. He spake, and my poor name he named. Of me thou hast not been ashamed. 
These deeds shall thy memorial be. Fear not, thou didst them unto me. When John Taylor was done, the prophet asked him to sing it again. And he did. That brings us to five o'clock. A mob storms the jail, runs upstairs, and they start shooting. Initially, Joseph and the others go to the door, try to stop them. One ball gets through and hits Hiram in the face. Hiram falls to the ground and says, I am a dead man. Joseph runs to Hiram and comforts him. It is true that Joseph grabbed a six-shooter and shot. And some people believe that tarnishes his legacy. They claim he doesn't deserve a martyr's tribute if he shot back. But it is my belief, and the evidence seems to suggest, that Joseph was shooting back not to defend himself, but to defend the other people in the room, to defend John Taylor, Willard Richards, and his brother Hiram. After Hiram is shot, he seems to know that there was no other way to escape this and that John Taylor and Willard Richards would also be butchered if he didn't get out. There seems to be a lot of evidence that Joseph went to the window to stop the bullets, to save John Taylor. And I believe Joseph's final act was to save the life of Willard Richards and John Taylor. John Taylor had been shot four times, one of which went through his leg and was in a great deal of pain. So he falls on the ground and rolls under the bed. Willard Richards is standing there trying to stop the bullets and doesn't take a single bullet. One grazed his earlobe, but he isn't hit at all, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Joseph had said to him. He told him one time, you and I will stand in a room and balls will fly about your head and you will remain unscathed. And Bryce, what's amazing to me is that Wood Richards is not a small person. He's a big dude. He's a large man. And, and he's right there. And there's all these people both in the hallway outside of the door, but then also outside facing the window. And Wood Richards' ear gets grazed by one of the balls. And that's it. Otherwise, he's not hit. But like you said, John Taylor is hit several times. The picture that we have in the show notes, it's a beautiful painting by an artist by the name of Casey Childs really captures what I think is the essence of what you're talking about, Bryce, of the struggle that they're having to survive. To me, Joseph is channeling Moroni. He wants to defend his brothers. And you can see in this image painted by Casey Childs where Joseph is pushing against the door and then in his pocket is that pepper box or that little six shooter that he has. And in the left hand of John Taylor in this painting is this rascal beater or this cane. You see, when the door is opened, Taylor's hitting the people that are bringing their guns and he's hitting them with the rascal beater and there's bullets flying everywhere. And I'm with you, Bryce. I think Joseph realizes I've got to be the martyr. I can probably save some of these individuals. Now, I really do think as soon as Hiram's hit and he's hit right in the face and the bullet exits his throat, there's blood everywhere. I think Joseph knows Hiram's gone. And I think it's clear to him. And so, you know, we, to this day, we don't know what's in Joseph's mind, but when he goes to the window and says, my Lord, my God, I think he's calling out to God, my work's over, I'm done. And and he's killed that day. But to me, it's amazing that John Taylor lives. Yeah. 
And there's a very tender scene. Willard Richards will later write an account of that day describing those moments. He really says it probably only lasted two or three minutes, but it sure seemed like a lifetime. And he'll describe that when Joseph falls out of the window, when he's shot and he falls out of the window, Willard Richards will write the following. I withdrew from the window, thinking of it no use to leap out on a hundred bayonets, then around General Joseph Smith's body. Not satisfied with this, I again reached my head out of the window and watched some seconds to see if there were any signs of life, regardless of my own, determined to see the end of him I loved. I think Joseph Smith needs to be judged by those who knew and loved him. And here is a man that went to prison with him. And as soon as he disappears out that window, I can't not look. I have to see if the one I loved is gone. Later, John Taylor will recover and in tribute to Joseph Smith will write section 135. And in that, he recites the history. He talks about, you know, the armed mob, five o'clock, 150 to 200 people. He describes Hiram being shot and claiming, I am a dead man. Joseph goes to the window and says, oh, Lord, my God. And then they were both brutally shot afterwards with several balls. John Taylor, Willard Richards were survived. And then kind of the definitive statement. And Every Latter-day Saint who ever sings praise to the man is singing this sentence. Now, let's be clear. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints worships Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and God that we worship. He is the master that we follow. It is his gospel we obey. But we revere this man with all of our hearts because he was the one that revealed Christ to us. It is through Joseph Smith that our knowledge of Christ has come. So forgive us if we pause a brief moment and praise the messenger and the contributions that he made. John Taylor will write, and Mike and I testify of this reality. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. He lived great. He died great. John Taylor then is then in verse 3 going to make a beautiful list of all of the contributions of Joseph Smith. Some of them will just let you read for yourselves, but I want to comment on what is the legacy of Joseph Smith? What did this man give us? The first thing that John Taylor will mention is that he brought forth the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and published it on two continents. I want to expand that a little bit because the Lord told Joseph Smith way back in the beginning, section five, this generation shall have my word through you. I have spent 30 years compiling a list. I think all of you know I like lists. And the list that I am compiling is, what do we know about Jesus through the restoration? What is the Jesus of the Book of Mormon? 
What do we know about the Redeemer that has come through Joseph Smith? Whether his pen, his voice, however it came to us, what do we know about Jesus? And that list, that's why I praise Joseph Smith, because he has given us a knowledge of Christ that has painted a picture that helps us understand who the Redeemer is. Now, in terms of scriptures, let me give you some interesting statistics that you may find fascinating. If we were to compile a list of the five most prolific writers of the Bible, who wrote more pages of the current Bible than anyone else? The five most prolific writers are, now, I don't want to get into authorship and did they actually write it, but just the pages attributed to an author. We'll do the documentary hypothesis next year. That's right. But the pages attributed to Moses are 308. The pages that Paul wrote are 123. And yes, I'm including the book of Hebrews, which is a little controversial. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, contributed 105 pages of the modern Bible. Isaiah is attributed to 66 chapters, and that's 81 pages. John, the Revelator, who wrote the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and the Revelation of John, contributed 77 pages of the modern Bible. If you were to combine the pages attributed to Moses, Paul, Luke, Isaiah, and John, the five most prolific Bible writers by reputation, that's 694 pages of the current Bible. Compare that to Joseph Smith, who gave us a current 531-page Book of Mormon, a 281-page Doctrine and Covenants, a 61-page Pearl of Great Price. And I'm not even counting the Joseph Smith translation, the Lectures on Faith, King Follett Sermon, and other inspired writings. Just the scriptures that Joseph Smith produced is 873 pages. And we must remember that there's a lot of stuff that, thank you, Martin Harris, we don't have. Didn't even get included. 873 of our current scriptural canonized pages came from the pen or the mouth of Joseph Smith. 694 Moses, Paul, Luke, Isaiah, and John combined. Joseph Smith has given us more scripture than anyone else. And the quality of that scripture the identity of Christ that has come through that scripture cannot be understated. I love it. And Joseph Smith stands at the head of the gospel dispensation that may include the majority of the premortal hosts of heaven before the world was. More people will learn of Christ and his gospel by missionaries who trace both their commission to teach and their understanding of Jesus Christ through the prophet Joseph Smith than will be the case in any other dispensation or with any other prophet who ever lived. I mean, if you think about this, just the population of the world. In Joseph Smith's lifetime, we hit one billion. And people thought, oh my goodness, that's a lot of people. Just in my lifetime, we've increased by over a billion. But since Joseph Smith's day, the population of the world has gone up 
another six billion. I mean, when the bulk of Heavenly Father's children are on the earth, we have more missionaries teaching the gospel in its simplicity and truth than ever in the history of the world. And so I like to think of it this way. God is doing all that he can to spread the word. And then it comes to me. What am I doing? What am I possibly doing to spread light? And I like to think of what should I do? Like section 123 says, I should waste and wear out my life in teaching Jesus and him crucified. And to me, the lens of the Book of Mormon is the best lens that I've ever found to try and understand what's happening in the Bible and to comprehend the nature of God. And so just in the sheer numbers, just mathematically, and then you add on top of it, the keys for the redemption of the dead. All the billions of spirits waiting in the spirit world. How many people will claim that their dispensation head was Joseph Smith? Not to compete prophet against prophet, but how would that compare to any other dispensation head? In addition to that, think about what has come through Joseph Smith. How many of us love the temple? How many of us absolutely love to attend the temple and feel the Father's presence there? And all of that was unheard of in the Christian world at Joseph's day. No one was doing that. Joseph restores ancient ordinances that have been withheld, and we get to enjoy them today. We get to walk into the celestial room and feel God's presence. Joseph restored keys and authorities as well as key doctrines. We could make a wonderful list about doctrines that have come through Joseph Smith that were not readily believed in his day. Doctrines like premortal life, doctrines like the destiny of mankind, the nature of the family, the nature of God, the nature of the Godhead, heavenly mother, many wonderful doctrines that you and I just eat and breathe every day were not even thought of by many congregations in Joseph Smith's day. I think also he's unpacking the Deuteronomistic historian's repackaging of who God is. That's just a fancy way of saying prior to the Deuteronomistic reform of the 7th century BC, the notion that God was corporeal was just everywhere. I mean, you read Genesis and we and you read Exodus and this idea that God is one of us in the sense of, and I'm not trying to bring God down, but that he is a human being, that he has eyes, fingers, ears, and a mouth. But it's through the revisionists in the seventh century that change God from an individual that actually is embodied to this essence that cannot be seen or known. And the temple is where his name shall dwell, not where he shall dwell, but where his name shall dwell. By the time we get to Christ's era, the idea of a father, I mean, that's what Jesus calls his father, but that idea was lost. And today in Christianity, by and large, the idea of a heavenly father is seen as a metaphor. And Joseph brings it down to the literal relationship that a child has with a father, that we have a father and that he is human. He's exalted. He's glorified. And like I said, I'm not trying to bring him down, but I'm trying to introduce these ideas that not only is he your father, but then you get into section 93. In section 93, it unlocks the notion of, well, who are we? And section 93 teaches that God is in us, that the light that is in God, and when I say God, I'm talking about Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, 
men and women have that divine spark in them. And it brings to meaning all kinds of answers to questions about what is man. And think about this, Joseph Smith is revealing who am I, how did I get here, and where am I going, and he's just unfolding this. And my contention is that it's not Joseph doing this. The Lord is doing this through him. And by the time he's 38 years old, he's unpacked all of these things. And if you think about it, the Book of Mormon is brought forth in 1829, 1830 is when it's published to the world. He's not around long. From 1830 to 1844, in just 14 short years, we've covered all this ground. And I don't see anyone, even with a supercomputer, putting out the kinds of things that Joseph is putting out in that time period in frontier America with literally pens that are made out of feathers, right? Like they're having to dip the feather in the ink and write this stuff down. And he doesn't have access to learning and degrees and lexicons and online dictionaries breaking down Hebrew and Greek. He's just putting this stuff out. And so I love it. I think that Joseph Smith is all that the scriptures say that he is. And hopefully we've been true to him and his witness. I hope that in this podcast, you can feel my love for him. But I also try to paint a picture where we can see both sides of the conflict, that there's humanity in William Law and there's humanity in Joseph, but there's also divinity in the work. I really feel that William Law can embrace Joseph. That one day, those two guys that were dead set against each other, But one day, they will be brothers again. That's my hope. And that's why I talk about William Law the way I do, because that man had a point, and he was trying to do good. And it's messy. And I think sometimes in the church, we vilify these guys, and we don't see their humanity. Yeah. We leave you with our witness of this man. He died great. He lived great. He left us with a legacy. So many of the things I treasure the most have the fingerprints of Joseph Smith all over them. So we'd like to leave you with this quotation from Josiah Quincy. This is not a member of the church. He was Harvard University president. He was a congressman, mayor of Boston, a man of distinguished character. Josiah Quincy once wrote, It is by no means improbable that some future textbook for the use of generations yet unborn will contain a question something like this. What historical American of the 19th century has exerted the most powerful influence upon the destinies of his countrymen? And it is by no means impossible that the answer to that interrogatory may be thus written. Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. Of his greatness, we bear witness and praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. We appreciate you being with us this week as we've talked about the prophet Joseph. We will see you next week when we cover section 137 and 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Thank you and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.